Well, welcome back to the second installment of our Stories in Genesis. Uh, I'm excited about this because it's an opportunity to dive into these stories in a little deeper way, not uh, just looking at the broader reaching impacts of it. And over time, as you study the Bible, it's one of the beauties of studying the Bible, is just, there's just layer after layer, and there's just lesson after lesson that I tend to appreciate more the more I read it. So let me say a prayer for us, and we will jump right in. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your blessings. We're grateful that we live in the country in which we live, and that we were born where we were born. And we pray, Father, for this nation, that you would guard our leaders' hearts. We pray that you would turn their hearts and minds to serve you. Pray for wisdom for our leaders. I pray, Lord, that this nation would be a beacon of peace and justice in the world, and that you would accomplish these things. I thank you for all those sharing online, those that are here. Lord, there's so many needs in our lives, and we know that you know those needs, that you care about us, and I pray for your presence and your healing power. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are going to take questions. I think you'll have a few questions about this uh, because of the nature of this topic. So that is the number to text questions during class. And then I have a couple that we didn't get to last time that I will pick up at the beginning of, of this session. So we're talking about stories in Genesis, and we're actually moving a little bit more slowly to dive a little bit more deeply into it. And in our last lesson, we talked about creation. We talked about the first two verses of Genesis 1. Now, really, Genesis 1 and 2 are kind of a creation process, but we, we drew some interesting uh, conclusions out of that. One was this, that the creation is intentional, intelligent, and personal in the sense that there is an intelligent, personal God behind creation, and it is purposeful. The idea, this is going to sound a little funny, but this is a very biblically uh, profound idea, is that God has a relationship with his creation. The best example I can give to you is a guy I used to know, and he was a car guy. And I, I've never been a big car guy, so I didn't really understand his, his love for his vehicle. But, I mean, it's the kind of guy that washed it every day, you know, took really unbelievable care of it. And, you know, it came to me one day that I realized... I think he loved that car more than he loved his children. Well, I know he loved the car more than he loved his children. I think he loved the car more than he loved his wife. And so my point is, I mean, we had a good time talking about this, and I was like, no, seriously, dude, I, I really think you have an issue here. But basically, he had a relationship with this. He cared for it. He cherished this car. And it's a beautiful car, but he cherished it. That's the way God is with what he has created. He cherishes his creation. It means something to him. He has a relationship. So we talked about not just God made this place. He didn't just make it intelligently, and he didn't just make it with a purpose. He has an ongoing interest in it. He sustains the universe. And the great lesson that we, that we took out of that was that the providence of God is a daily reality for those in Christ. What do I mean by that? He also didn't just save you and say, off you go. Check back in with me when you die. We'll talk about heaven and just you know, hope, hope life goes well for you. In other words, God has this sustaining relationship with us, and I, we call that providence. We know God is sovereign, meaning he's powerful. He can do everything. But he not only is sovereign, he also provides for us. He has a relationship with us. That's called God's providence. And so the providence of God, the providing of God, the ongoing presence of God is a daily reality for us. That's encapsulated in Romans 8.28. That's what, Romans 8.28 doesn't just start one little verse. It goes all the way back and picks up creation and everything about the character of God. That God works all things for good for those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. This is, this is a natural outgrowth of the nature of creation. We did have a few questions, though, and I want to pick those up. The creation, can we believe this story without understanding everything about creation? I didn't get into some of the more common details, although feel free to ask about this. 
But basically, you know, was a creation happen in six 24-hour days or did it happen over a longer period of time? And what this question is saying is without understanding exactly every detail of the creation story, can I, can I believe this without being able to explain everything? And the answer is absolutely. And, and my answer for why is a little different. I'm not gonna tell you just because you have faith. Well, that's true, you trust things that you cannot explain. But I, want, I don't ever want you to feel defensive about this. Everybody, now I'm talking about every person you know, not Christian, every scientist you know, no matter how rational, I believe in science, yeah, right. You believe in a ton of things that you cannot explain. You see what I'm saying? This is not a Christian thing to say, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Well, can you tell me exactly how? No. Well, then you can't believe that. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, people today don't even know how their phones work. You know, and yet you believe in it. I'll give you a great example. Let's just go to science. But if you think about this, seriously, everybody believes in things they can't explain because you can't explain everything about everything in life. Great example of this. Here's a simple question that a child will ask you that the smartest scientist in the world in all of history cannot answer. What is space? I mean, what do you have out there? Well, you got some matter here, you got some matter there. Okay, that's fair enough. What's in between it? No one has any idea what space is. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that not seem like the most obvious question you could ask? Well, you got a planet here, you got a planet here, you got a little bit of dust, but you got a lot of nothingness in there. Yeah, what is that? I have no idea. Well, people will give you an answer. They'll say, oh, it's the ether. What's the ether? Well, I don't know, but it's a good name. It makes it sound like I understand it. It's dark matter. What's dark matter? Dark matter is nothing more than a, a, a piece of an equation that's needed to balance the equation. It, the fact that you can label something does not mean you understand it. And I'm not anti-science. I'm not trying to be uh, you know, just really negative about this. I'm just pointing out the obvious truth. Everybody believes in things they can't fully explain. That in and of itself is not an issue. So yes, great question. You don't have to be able to explain every detail, reconcile everything in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with what people used to think, what they think now, or what they'll think tomorrow. No one can do that. Great question. Is it possible to reconcile a young earth and old earth creation story and references a book by uh, Gerald uh, Schroeder? He's written several books on this, but what this question is actually asking is, old earth and young earth creationists, here, I'm gonna give you the short version. Old earth says, the events of Genesis one and two took place over what is currently thought. And when I say currently, I mean scientists 50 years ago didn't think this, so wait for it to change. And again, I'm not anti-science, but anybody come say, we now know this. You now know this and in 20 years, they'll think differently. I mean, it's good science changes. 14.7 billion years old is how old uh, the universe is. And so the question is, does Genesis one and two, can it be understood that God created it, but over a period of time? Young Earth basically says, no, he created this whole place in six 24 hour periods. Can those be reconciled? There are a number of people that try to reconcile that. Uh, let me give you the skip to the end. You can read the whole book, but here's what it's gonna boil down to. When does time start? If you think about a Big Bang theory, if you're a scientist and you get the Big Bang and it blows up, time's not, doesn't, is not the same through all this period. Time does really weird stuff in there. In other words, it has to do with velocity, it has to do with heat, it has to do with a lot of factors, and that time itself is not a constant in there. That's basically how you would wanna reconcile these things. But yes, there are people out there and books out there that try to reconcile a 14 billion year old earth in Genesis one and two. Good question. The third one has more to do with biological life, which we didn't get into then, but we will in this lesson. Do more people believe in microevolution than macroevolution? And this is a good segue because we're gonna talk about Adam and Eve in this lesson. So we talked about the creation of the universe, now we're gonna talk about basically the creation of Adam and Eve, life. So what is microevolution, what is macroevolution? 
Microevolution is the theory, but very well established by observable evidence, that within species, things change, physical attributes change over time and according to various pressures, environmental pressures, okay? Probably the biggest of this would be Darwin's uh, study of beaks and that kind of thing. Uh, dogs a thousand years ago used to have short hair now, that breed has long hair, etc. In other words, can there be genetic changes within a species? Undoubtedly, that seems to be a very well-established uh, idea. Macroevolution, which is much more theoretical and much more difficult to establish, is the idea that one species can evolve into another species. Does that make sense? That's called macro. So that's, can dogs change over time? And this breed used to have short hair, now they have long hair. Or you can breed them and now you have a what? golden poodle doodle miniature. Yeah, you can just basically, you know, create new things through this. That's microevolution. Macroevolution is I start with a dog and I end up with a supermodel. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's basically extra species. So yes, more people uh, accept the idea of microevolution than macroevolution in the sense that there's just better established data for it. Which segues nicely into the idea of the creation of Adam and Eve. So what I want to talk about in this session, and I want to make sure I save time for it, is I want to go into some of the important elements of the account of the creation of Adam and Eve, some enduring biblical and human ideas that are encoded in this story. But at the end, after we do that, I want to answer the question, did Adam and Eve really exist as two individuals? And that's not so enduring a question. So I want to look at the implications of the creation story. Then we'll home in on the specifics. Did Adam and Eve actually exist? And does it matter whether you believe that or not? Do you need to believe that to be a Christian? So that's where we're going to go. So let's start with the creation story itself. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Now we're after creating all kinds of other stuff. We got the sun, we got the moon, we got the plants, we got the oceans, we got the clouds, we got all this. And you notice I'm skipping a lot of things in the interest of time, but I wanna talk about the creation of humanity. Then God said, let us make man in our image, and I'm gonna to wanna to write on this in a second, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This is poetic. You go, why is he repeating himself? This is poetry. So, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you get this idea at the very top. I wanna to make two points, but at the very top, you get this idea of purposeful creation. Creation's going somewhere. We didn't start with eels and end there. There is a progression through creation that, we'll talk about evolution in just a second, that is not there in evolution. But the whole point is God's creating less complex to more complex. He's creating to the, to the apex of creation, a sentient being, the only creation created in the image of God and given dominion and power and authority to care for creation. We'll talk about that in a second. But I wanna point out a couple things here. This word for man, I would translate humanity. That is the word Adam. And the word Adam means humankind, humanity. And so all humanity, is created in some sense in the image of God. And this is the basis. Here's the first point I wanna make that's the just knock you over implication of the Christian account of the creation of life that is in no other account of the creation of life. This is where human dignity and the value of every human life comes from, period. There are a lot of people in the world that believe that every human life matters, but they don't have any particularly good reason to think that. 
and I'll get into that a little more. For example, last time I gave you the creation account from the ancient Babylonians, and I realize they're not around right now, but if you remember Marduk, the, the great god of the Babylonians and a bunch of other people in that time, created humanity for what? To serve the gods. Human beings have no use, no importance beyond serving the gods. In the evolutionary idea, the Darwinian story, is it time for me to tell you about that? Nah, save that thought. But here's the big thing on the Christian story. You as a believer in God, creating humanity in his image, this is the logical, reasonable foundation of why every human life matters. I have yet to find any other philosophy of life, any other religion that can give you a reasonable answer other than, well, I just think it does. And you should treat people well and everybody matters. Why? This is the only account that gives you a reason why everybody matters because you're created in the image of God. The second point I wanna make is God made humanity in a particular way. He created humanity to be gendered. That's what we call it. You have male and female. These are different words. So the word for male is zakar, and it means male. I mean, it is a human being, but it is the male version. And for female is nechabah. Those Hebrew words mean a male and a female. And so built into creation is first the idea of the image of God for all humanity. But then humanity is also gendered. This is an interesting question that people have asked for ever since there have been people around is, why did God make males and females? because that seems like the beginning of all the conflict in the world right there. You know, could we not have done this another way, right? But there's an interesting implication of the idea of being gendered. And this idea is that you have an interdependence. Males and females both created in the image of God. So to use modern language, this is not language people understood in, in earlier times. Men and women are created equal, equally in the image of God, equally gifted, equally talented, but not the same, right? Oh, that's a duh kind of a statement. Unfortunately, in our culture, that is not a duh statement anymore. But the point is, is that they're created not the same, but equal, and particularly equal in dignity and importance. This, in a physical sense, you can say, Terry, I understand why there are two genders because that's the way God made it for procreation. Yes, there is an interdependency between males and females to fill the earth, which is one of the commandments of God, is populate the earth, fill it. Fill the void with meaning, with people, with creatures, with creation. But in a deeper sense, you begin to see God's longer term plan, because by the time you get to the New Testament, you have an understanding of marriage as being about far more than procreation. Is it about procreation? Well, yes. But in the New Testament, marriage is, is, has got a spiritual component that's as important as the physical component. And that is marriage is there to help make you holy, make you like God. Why and how is that the case? Because in forcing you to be interdependent, it makes you less self-centered. You actually understand what love is when you have an other whom you love. I want you to think about the Trinity. Why is God one in three persons and the relationship among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? This is the model for the idea of what does love of other look like? Not self-love, but self-sacrificial love for someone else. Being Humanity being created gendered, male and female, a husband and wife, that is the essential bedrock 
of spiritually developing us to understand their true intimacy of love. Does that make sense? This is all purposeful in creation, and it's layered in its purposefulness. Is it to populate the earth? Yes. Could God have come up with another way to reproduce? Well, in the animal kingdom, there are other ways to reproduce. Yes. But this serves a deeper, more spiritual purpose. Our relationships are key to our spiritual development. That's also a very unique idea to Christianity. So number one, God made us a particular way. And being created in the image of God has unbelievable implications for the value of human life and who we are and why we matter. Second, it goes on, it says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those become problematic, that's next time. But for now, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So God has given humanity dominion over his creation to care for it, to work in it. So he's created man in a specific way and he's created humanity for a specific purpose and that purpose is to work. Now, work is a four-letter word now. And that's because we're on this side of the fall and the fall of humanity changed work. It's, it's amazing that that's what gets brought up as one of the consequences of the fall is your work will be different now. But on this side, on the creation as God intended it, work is the purpose giving, fulfilling, building, creating and caring for each other and for the earth. We were built to work. We were built to have meaning through activity, through positive activity. There's nothing in here that says to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve weren't killing animals at this point. Read, I didn't put this part of the story in, but as you read the story, all the plants were given to them for food. They're not killing anything. There's no destruction happening here because that's not what we were made for. There's caring, nurturing, growing, harvesting. There's no killing each other. There's no killing animals. There's, that's not what's happening. That's not the way it was created. Work changes with the fall. But here you get this idea of the purpose that we're given to, and that's why, just as a societal issue, work is always preferential to welfare. Welfare is good. That's compassion for people who cannot care for themselves. That's a good thing. And work is a better thing. Why is work a better thing? Not for some political reason, not for, oh, you're lazy, you need to go work. That's not the point. That's not why work is important. Work is important because we were made to do that, because our Father does that, because God works to build things, to nurture things. We were created for work. So you're created in a specific way, we were created for a specific purpose. Chapter two of Genesis has a second, it's really not a second, but it's an expanded account of the creation of man and woman, not the creation of humanity. We've already talked about he's created the male and female, but chapter two takes that little piece and sort of expands on it. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the he took a part of the man's side, is what the Hebrew actually says, and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, and listen to this, this is also poetry, but what is he saying? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, I give you the Hebrew here, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Okay, I'll leave the last sentence, because that's actually the one I want to talk about. But I already talked to you about, we're created gendered, why? To be interdependent, equal, not the same, interdependent, coming together, learning physical, obviously procreation, 
but in a deeper way, what love really looks like. And that's what this says, that she is flesh of my flesh, he is bone of my bone, and we will leave our father and mother and be united and become, not just be united like we're gonna be good business partners in this marriage, we're gonna cohabitate in this marriage, we're gonna love each other, we're going to become one flesh. You see the trinity in this? This is beyond you and me to the idea of unbelievably true intimacy. Do we ever get that in fallen humanity and marriages? Well, no, not necessarily, but the point is this is teaching us the image of this is what you can look forward to only way more, real intimacy. But the most inter interesting part to me is this last sentence, like why is this sentence even here, right? If I just didn't even put this on the slide and I went and, and redacted it you know, from your Bible, would you miss this verse? The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Have you ever stopped to wonder, why is this even here? Is this even necessary? Have you even ever thought about this? Well, my argument is, this is here for a purpose. Actually, everything in your Bible is there for a purpose. And this has a really profound purpose. We were created in a particular way. We were created for a particular purpose. And we were created for intimate, transparent relationships. What does nakedness fundamentally mean to us? For us in this world, it is the least protected you can be. Has anybody ever watched that show? What is it, Naked and Alone? The whole drop you naked into the, de into the jungle and you gotta live? Why is that so much scarier than Survivor Man? Because that dude had clothes, right? I mean, they drop you in the middle of somewhere, you're lost, right? Yeah, but at least he's got clothes. Why does that matter? Vulnerability, protection, security, we even go beyond clothes, we put on masks, don't we? We put on personas, if you will. Inside us is the real us. And in fallen humanity, on this side of the fall, we are afraid to be seen, to be known, we fear. And so we put on clothes because we're ashamed, we're afraid. We put on personas. We go into the multiverse and put on uh, an avatar. I mean, how, how scared can you get of real human interaction? Do you understand what I'm saying? All this stuff actually is, is a deep-seated issue. On that side of the fall, the way we were created is there is no need for anything except transparency. We were created for open, transparent relationships with each other and more importantly, with God. I'll skip forward. After the fall, what's the first thing they do after they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, they go shopping, I mean, because they need clothes, right? All of a sudden, what do they realize? Oh, we're naked. And God, what was God's first question to them? Who told you you were naked? What is that actually saying? Something has changed. It's not transparent anymore, is it? It's not authentic anymore, is it? I've just introduced shame, guilt. I now need to hide. The first thing Adam and Eve do is cover themselves up. And God realizes something has changed. The relationship is marred, isn't it? We were made for open, transparent, authentic, accepting relationships. This is why, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but I want you to know, you take this little thread and you can follow it all the way through the New Testament. That's why the gospel is so powerful. God knows you. He sees through your clothes, if you will, Adam and Eve. He sees in your heart. He knows what you have done and he loves you. That's what this is about. That's what you were made for. And that's why the gospel is such a powerful message. Don't ever think somebody's too smart or too scientific or too atheistic or too sophisticated to respond to the gospel message. Why? Because you were made for authentic, transparent 
loving relationship and everything we do in our lives is hiding a guilty, shamed, scared core of who we are. Is this too philosophical? This explains why people act the way they do. This is, that little key right there explains most of Western civilization and explains most of our difficulties in relationship and it explains why the gospel is powerful. Never, ever sell the gospel short. The gospel addresses our deepest need. We desperately want to get back to being, quote, naked, emotionally transparent, and not be ashamed. And God, that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He offered a way for that to happen. Okay, this is getting a lot like a sermon right now, but I'm pretty excited about this. You need to be excited about this. This is why that's there, and that's why the gospel is so compelling. Okay, question. Yes. Um, the book of Genesis is originally in the Jewish Bible, the Torah. Um, do Jews make the same analysis of the creation story, but leave out the Trinity metaphor? Yes, good question. Uh, so Genesis, part of the Hebrew scriptures, would Jewish commentaries say some of the things that I am saying to you? Yes. Uh, you got all the way from liberal Jewish thought to conservative Jewish thought, Orthodox conservative Jewish thought would agree more with what I am saying to you and what you think about uh, the book of Revelation. But yes, very, very much so. Good question. Okay, I told you I wanted to save time for this, and I do. So, but to me, this is the power of the story. You're created a particular way in the image of God. That is the only basis for human rights. That's what the founders of this country, and I'm not dissing other countries, got right. People are granted certain unalienable rights by their creator. The Declaration of Independence absolutely understands this and says the only ground for human dignity, the only ground for you to matter is because you have been granted that by your creator. That is true, and it is the only story that has that conclusion. You're created in a certain way, and you're created for a certain purpose, for work, and you're created, as marred as it may be, for open, transparent, accepting, loving relationship. Righteousness, this is what righteousness is really talking about in the New Testament. I know it's a different way to think about it. It's a really powerful way to think about it. Righteousness means I don't need to hide from God anymore. It means all those things I was ashamed of and all those things that have marred my soul and all those things that I feel guilty for have been taken away and now I stand metaphorically naked before God, meaning no hiding, no masks, no anything else. Righteousness means ah, I'm back to the way I was created. You see the power in that? Okay, let's move on to apes. Darwinian evolution, short course. Two things you need to know about Darwinian evolution. These are the only two things that really matter. I mean, you can argue about all the data, you can talk about the fossil record, and that's all fun, and love to talk about that. But the two things I really wanna talk about are this. Darwinian evolution has two ideas, one of which people believe, one of which people don't believe. But Darwinian evolution says this, is that all life, including human life, came about from a single organism that evolved and became, starts out, let's just fast forward to the chimpanzees here, starts with a chimpanzee, turns into a more sophisticated chimpanzee, turns into a Cro-Magnon, turns into a Neanderthal, turns into all kinds of things, turns into Homo sapiens. How does it turn into that? This is the key. Two things, random mutations. Random mutations happen all the time. That's why Delta turns into Omicron, okay? Random mutations and natural selection. And that's not very complicated, it just says, that things change because their DNA 
changes for a variety of reasons, but it's totally random. I don't know, it's changing all the time and most of them die and, it's just, and so forth. But every now and then, survival of the fittest kicks in and some change makes you propagate the species better. And the survival of the fittest is another phrase for uh, natural selection. Does that make sense? Two mechanisms that take you from one piece of life goes all the way to the other. Inside a species, between species. You now understand Darwinian evolution. Don't ever let anybody kid you because they're gonna talk about it like it's way kinder and gentler than that. That is Darwinian evolution, period. Only two things going. Is there any intelligence in this? No, there is not. Is there any compassion? No, there is not. Is there a plan? No, there is not. Is there any reason that you go from simpler organisms that that chart needs to look that way? No, there is not. Is it going somewhere? No, it is not. You hear what I'm saying? This is just Darwinian evolution. This is not some preacher telling you something he wants you to believe. Darwinian evolution is built on two mechanisms, random mutations and natural selection, competition. Makes perfect sense, right? Okay, so it's not directed, it's not saved up, it's not planned. You can't have one mutation a day and go, ooh, that could be useful later, hang on to it. No, you don't get to hang on to anything. It stands or dies on its own, right? Okay, so that's a theory, that that's how you get from there to there. I actually like this picture better. I believe we evolved and now we've devolved. <laughs> Just a little humorous break there before we get really too serious. Okay, so let's talk about Adam and Eve. Needless to say, evolution, is there an Adam and an Eve? No. There's just this fuzzy little mutating people that turn into better looking people, that turn into better looking people, that turn into somebody that looks like your neighbor. Okay, it just happens. There's no Adam, no Eve. People have been trying hard to reconcile that because the Bible portrays Adam and Eve as an historical event and as a special act of creation. Not random, not evolutionary, at least in that piece of it, but that God created something recognizable as human beings because they have moral culpability, right? They have the ability to communicate with God. These are not chimpanzees. I love chimpanzees, but that's not what they were. They are able to communicate, they're able to speak, they're able to understand a moral compulsion of do this, don't do this. Does that make sense? That they are human beings. Science says, no, no such people. Interestingly, so I'll take you on a little journey here, ask any questions you want. Mitochondrial Eve, this is just interesting to me. So here's one of the great ways to merge this. This actually came from the science side, not from the religion side. Because honestly, good science and religion really aren't in opposition at all. But, so DNA works this way. This is really basic. Some of you know more about this than I do, but DNA is really interesting. But you have a couple kinds of DNA. One is the kind that comes from dad, mom, makes you uniquely who you are. You know, I have a big nose. Yeah, I know, so did my dad. Okay, so that's regular old DNA. But you also have DNA in, in your body that comes only from your mother. And it's called mitochondrial DNA, right? That's the good part of men. Yeah, that's the only really good part, I, also humor. All right, so no, that's true. So anyway, you have some DNA that only comes from your mother. That's called mitochondrial DNA. And so the thought is, and this is a theory, but the thought is, is if you look at all the DNA in the world and you take the mitochondrial DNA, that it appears, this is a theory, that it all goes back to maybe a common ancestor. And this is a picture of what somebody thinks this ancestor might have looked like. Not a pretty girl, but nevertheless, maybe the mother of all humanity, right? And so from a science point of view, it's interesting to looking at the idea of genetics is that, is there a common thread that goes back? Well, needless to say, this is not a popular theory because that sounds an awful lot like an Eve, doesn't it? But it's interesting how sometimes you'll see these ideas kind of come together. So in general, here are, uh, you've got, let me just go all the way from what's not Christian into the area of Christianity. 
Darwinian evolution is not a biblical idea. It is not consistent or consonant with the Bible. But hear what I'm saying, Darwinian idea that everything comes about because of those two mechanisms, random chance, random mutations, and natural selection. Move over a little bit and you get to what's called evolutionary creation. Evolutionary creation says all those evolutionary mechanisms worked except the random mutations. That actually, as you go, there are random mutations, but God was directing evolution. Oh, now all of a sudden, it is going somewhere. There's a good reason to explain why you start with an ape and you end up with a complicated human being. There's no particular reason for that in Darwinian evolution. But if God is involved, there is. Sometimes you'll hear this called theistic evolution. In other words, I'm, I'm okay with science. We did all evolve from whatever, chimpanzees, but it wasn't random. There's purpose in it. Okay, so this is now starting to get within something that could be called biblical, okay? So there are Christians who look at the creation of humanity this way. Next step is something that's called archetypal kind of evolution. And this is sidestepping it a little bit. It says that was there a real Adam and Eve? Not sure, but what really matters is at some point there were a couple of Neolithic husband and wife that God chose and communicated with and the Bible is calling them Adam and Eve and telling us this is the progenitors of the human race, these are the original moral agents. Well, what I just told you about evolutionary creation, not exactly a great fit with Genesis 1-2, but at least it has God, it has direction, it has purpose, right? This goes a little further, and it still doesn't exactly have an original Adam and Eve, but it says, but what the Bible's saying about Adam and Eve being the first moral agents and setting the tone for humanity, Okay, we at least have that part. Next, you go to what's called uh, old earth creation. And in old earth creation, you say, it happened the way Genesis says, but it didn't happen in the time frame. So for example, when it said God created the plants of the field, well, that happened to have taken two million years through an evolutionary process. But God decreed it, he set up all these rules, and sure enough, it came about through a natural scientific process. You hearing me? Now we're getting kind of closer to the biblical account like it really did happen, but it, God used the scientific mechanism. And then finally, you have the, actually, uh, there's probably some of that science is true, probably some of it is not true. That, that's true for all science. Good science is comfortable with that. It's gonna change. But basically, on the key things that it says in Genesis, God actually did that supernaturally. What do I mean when I say supernatural? He didn't use a natural process. He literally created Adam and Eve as fully formed human beings. Because if there's a God and he can create the universe, I'm pretty sure he can handle creating Adam and Eve as individual people. Fair enough? So those are different ways Christians want to look at the creation story and accept Genesis 1 and 2, but also synthesize it to a smaller or greater degree with current scientific thinking. And I say current just because it will change. If it's good science, it will change. So, was there an actual Adam and an Eve? Some of those theories say no, but that's probably not the point of the Genesis story. The point of the Genesis story is that humans have sinned, we have a legacy of sin, we have rebelled against God and we do rebel against God. That makes sense? That's a little weak, isn't it? Because it says, well, the Genesis story is not literally true, but it's fundamentally true in a, in a bigger way. Whereas then you get all the way to, no, I actually think God can and did supernaturally create Adam and Eve. And there really was an Adam and an Eve. So what's the difference then? So I'm just giving you a little bit of landscape there. So what's the, 
the essential idea between thinking there was an actual Adam and Eve as opposed to somewhere along some Neanderthal couple, boom, you're Adam and Eve. You know, as sort of a, just pick somebody out of this evolutionary process versus a no, something new came about in the world that was created by God. Okay, so what's the difference in that and what is the concern with saying yes or no? First of all, that's not a salvation issue. Let me just say that up front. And I agree with that. Are all these ideas correct? No, they're not all correct. But none of them would bar you from fundamentally being within the tent of Christianity. In other words, you can be wrong without being evil. You can be wrong and be sinful, but you can be wrong without being sinful. Do you understand the difference that I'm making? So I don't think all of those are true. In fact, all of those cannot be true. They all have some element of an important truth in them, but they are not all correct way of looking at it. But none of those ways of looking at this would necessarily say you can't be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. And when I say obedient, what I mean, I believe what Jesus says and I do what Jesus told me. Not a, I'm a Christian and I kind of do whatever I think Jesus would want. You know, I, I create my own Jesus. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about basically, can you see this in a lot of ways and not be certain about this and still be a Christian? Yes, you can. So that's the preface. But here's the danger. And this is the key, there are two key ideas here that are important. Let me use a couple of Keller quotes just to crystallize this. The first is this, that this story, it gets at the authority of scripture. That is a big deal. Once you say, well, I don't think that story is quite literally true, fair enough, you may be wrong, but that is not gonna keep you from being a Christ follower. If, however, your belief in the authority of scripture erodes, you will get to the point where you are the authority, not God's revealed word. So is this an issue? No, but could it become one? And that's what Keller's saying. When you refuse to take a biblical author literally when he wants you to do so, you have moved away from the traditional understanding of biblical authority. He isn't saying, oh, you're going to hell now. What he's saying is, is that, that should be a warning sign. Here's how I say it. Let the Bible be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. Sometimes the Bible wants to be poetry. Sometimes it wants to be a command. Sometimes it wants to be a historical narrative. Sometimes it wants to be a proverb. Let it be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say, meaning I don't like it, but that's true because that's God's revelation. And that's what he's saying is the key question is not can I make Genesis fit with scientific thinking the way it is today, right? Or can I get very close to Darwinian evolution? Wrong question. Question is, what does this story want to be? Well, it would be one thing if it was like the Enuma Elish. Remember the story I told you about Tiamat gets murdered by Marduk, puts her body in half, and part becomes a sky? That's called a myth and I'm using that word technically in a, in a literary sense, that's a myth. That story isn't pretending to tell you how it actually happened. It's pretend, it wants to tell you something really important about creation, but it doesn't even expect you to believe that, oh, this is all made out of Tiamat's body. It, it's a myth. It's not intending to be that literal. This account is not mythical. The biblical account wants to be historical, and there's the catch. Things don't, here's this, an interesting dynamic. Historical events get mythologized. That's the direction that humans go over time. So for example, everybody knows in the time of the ancient Babylonians that this thing got created. But instead of saying it was created through quantum physics and a big bang, et cetera, it gets mythologized into saying, well, the gods who are controlling things did this. You never go myth, you never go the other way. You never start with a myth and get to a reality. Do you hear what I'm saying? You don't start with Marduk killing Tiamat and end up with the big bang theory. 
it just, that is never the way it works. The problem is this story sounds like a historical account. It wants to be a factual account. And so what Keller is saying is the creation story, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, let me just stick with our topic, creation of Adam and Eve appears to not be, and it is not written like a myth, like, well, there's probably some evolution and at some point there was some couple that really woke up and all of a sudden got really enlightened and they were woke and oh my gosh, you're Adam and Eve. And that's not the way it happened. It doesn't sound like a mythologizing of something. It sounds like a God decided to create a man and a woman in a supernatural special act of creation. So what he's saying is the danger in this is not so much in being wrong, the danger is, is understand that let the Bible be what it wants to be and if it wants to be an historical account then you have a decision to make. Fair enough? That is probably the biggest point about the idea of do I need to believe that there was an actual Adam and Eve or that Adam and Eve is archetypal? It's certainly not mythological but it's archetypal it's metaphorical, it's trying to teach you some lesson. It's true, it is definitely teaching you a lot of lessons. That's what I talked about in the first part of this, uh, this lesson, but it actually also wants to be more literal. For example, Jesus in the New Testament quotes Genesis 1:27. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, etc. Jesus believed a certain account of creation to be historically, factually true. The Apostle Paul, who we believe is inspired, not just some Joe writing what he thinks, writes about Adam as though Adam is an individual. And in fact, that turns out to be very important. And this is the second big reason why it actually does make a difference if you believe in an actual Adam and Eve. I'm not saying it makes a difference you're going to heaven or hell. What I'm saying is, is that it really gets to a deeper question of in what sense do you understand the Bible being authoritative? In what sense did Jesus understand this story being authoritative? Second one is this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. This is actually in more places than this. He says, death came through a man. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. So for example, if we don't think Adam was an actual man, that that's a, an archetype, then why do you think Jesus rose from the dead? Is that also an archetype? Is that also a metaphor? You understand where I'm going. I'm not being argumentative. I'm just saying, fair question, right? But here's the problem. Christianity is based on the historicity of the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so, this is the point the killer's gonna make, and he makes a good point. Paul says, death came through a man, because he sinned. Life comes through a man, Jesus, who died to take our sin. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Here's the interesting thing, this is a little bit subtle, but you have a covenantal relationship. So remember when I said in creation, when God creates humanity, it's not like an evolutionary point of view is, Oh my gosh, I started this process and look what we have, a man and a woman. That's evolution, right? Like, huh, who knew that was coming? Okay, I kind of like this. Let's make more of them. All right, so bottom line, this was like, no, very intentional, and there's a caregiving relationship, isn't there? It's not like he made Adam and Eve and said, see you later, have fun, I'll check back in in 100 years. It's like, no. He walks in the garden. He has a relationship with them. There's a covenant. Covenant's an old word, but think about it as in it's an intimate, committed relationship. I care about you. I'm going to take care of you, etc. So if that covenant is there, then Jesus comes to restore that covenantal relationship. If Adam and Eve aren't real, they're archetypes, there's no covenant, there's just an idea of explaining, well, how'd sin get in the world? Well, some of those Neanderthals got to be morally aware and did what was wrong, intentionally did what was wrong. We're not talking two-year-olds here doing something wrong and you go, well, you're not exactly a fully formed moral agent, are you? We don't tend to hold our two-year-olds to be morally culpable for everything that they do. We do hold Adam and Eve culpable for what they chose, right? Obey, disobey. The problem is if there's no Adam and Eve, there's no covenant. 
There's no relationship to restore. Why does Jesus come to restore the relationship with God? Because there isn't one. Are you getting this? That's what Keller is saying. If Adam doesn't exist, Paul's whole point that sin breaks a covenant and grace restores it completely falls apart. You can't say that Paul was a man of his time but accept the basic teaching about Adam. If you don't believe what Paul believes about Adam, you're denying the core of that teaching. It actually makes a difference theologically in how you understand your relationship to God. So the idea of there being an actual Adam and an actual Eve, hear me, I'm not saying if, if you're struggling with that, you don't believe that, you have one of these other ideas that, oh my gosh, you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that keep thinking about that. There are deeper ideas behind that. Question. Was the creation story of Adam and Eve orally passed down until Moses actually wrote it in Genesis? Good question. This is one that's, that's not entirely clear. I'm just trying to think about the best way to answer this briefly. There's no particular evidence that the Genesis creation account started as an oral tradition because things that start as oral traditions and get written down have a certain character. We see that all the time through history happening. No particular evidence that that was the case. It appears more in the Christian idea of inspiration is that Moses didn't sit down and say, gosh, you know, how did creation probably happen? That's called a myth. And that you, when you write that, you write a myth. We believe in the idea of inspiration is God revealed to him. The reason the scripture is authoritative is it didn't start with Moses, didn't start with Paul, didn't even start with the man Jesus. It starts with the God through his Holy Spirit revealing things. So really this is written much more like somebody, God walks up to Moses. I'm using being a little glib here. And he says, let me tell you how this happened. At the very beginning, I created the heavens and the earth and things were a total mess. God created the heavens. In other words, you see what I'm saying? This story seems more like revelation than the redaction, what's called the editing, collecting of an oral tradition. Uh, so that's as short as I can get on that. But no, it doesn't show, it doesn't look like an oral tradition. Does Darwin ever address genders? Is that something that happened through natural selection in the Darwin theory? Yeah, I'm not an expert on Darwinism, the details of Darwinism, and neither is anybody else. There's a lot of conjecture out there. I do not recall, and I don't know what the current state of Darwinian theory is. It's moved quite a bit from Darwin. I don't know if there's a specific explanation of when gendered beings came into play and what pressures might have brought them into play. I will simply say this. If you are reproducing by yourself, which they're elementary creatures that reproduce by themselves. They're not male and female. It's like, you know, a cell says, oh, it's getting crowded in here. I'm going to split in two. Okay, so you don't always have male and female in every simple organism. I cannot imagine how it's an evolutionary good thing to say, oh, I now need somebody else to reproduce. Hard to understand how that is an evolutionary move forward. But no, I don't actually happen to know where the state of thinking is on that. What are your thoughts about why we question the creation story, but not other supernatural events like the resurrection? Yeah, it's a great question. Why do we, why do we want to accommodate, synthesize, accommodate current scientific thinking, but we don't with certain other things. And I'm gonna just give you an opinion, this is an opinion question. So this is my opinion, if you disagree. I think it just depends on where the culture's pushing us. I think culture's pushing us on creation, and so you tend to wanna to go, well, I don't wanna be weird. I mean, I'm being a little glib, but fundamentally, if the culture pushes you, let's see if we can't make everybody happy. Where else is the culture pushing today? social justice, sexual ethics, morality in a lot of ways, and what are we doing? Well, you kind of see the church trying to accommodate it. I think that's, that's a natural reaction. 
if tomorrow somebody said, there is no way anybody ever came back from the dead, and you know what, Christians are stupid for believing that, and I'm not hiring you because you believe that, you'd start seeing some accommodations of that too. That's my opinion. It's just where you're getting pushed. I could be wrong, but that's my opinion on it. So were Adam and Eve covered in glory before the fall? That's a really religious kind of question. Were Adam and Eve covered in glory before the fall? Like if I can rephrase that just a little bit to be more, just uh, maybe make sense to more people. We talk about in the New Testament that as fallen humanity, we are under the wrath of God. We live in a body that will die. Our bodies were never, Adam and Eve were never meant to die. Death is not a part of the world at that point in time. Death comes in the fall. And we'll talk about that next time. But basically, we are justified, means we are made righteous. Justified and righteous are the same Greek word. We're made righteous, and what did I say that? All our sins go away, we become metaphorically naked, meaning back to transparent, like, oh my goodness, I don't have to run and hide from you anymore, God. Then we become sanctified, made holy. This is all over the New Testament. This is the gospel. The Holy Spirit then, once we surrender our lives and say, take these sins, I can't deal with it. Jesus Christ, I'm gonna place my faith in you. And we're, we're made righteous or justified. Then the spirit of God comes into us, which is always the original design, and begins to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ and begins to prune us. You become less in love with sin. You become less in love with yourself. This is the whole idea of becoming Christ-like. Right? It's a work that we cooperate, but it's really something the Spirit does. I'm powerless to act like Jesus Christ on my own, but the Spirit helps us. And then at the end of that process, when we look at each other in heaven, we will be glorified, meaning, oh my goodness, in some sense, you shine forth with a purely transparent, not marred, muddy image of God that Adam and Eve were given. Do you understand? You come back to looking like you were always meant to look, and that is, I can clearly see the image of God in you. I know it's hard to look at people in our world, fallen humanity, hard to look at Adolf Hitler. I mean, pick your favorite villain. It's hard to look at a lot of people and say there's an image of God in that person because it's bent, it's marred, it's distorted. But glorification is having that back. Okay, that's a long-winded way of saying Yes. Okay? So, that's, that is where we are going. And so the, the concerns with that is, so, do you as a Christian need to believe that there was an Adam and an Eve created by a special act of God? There are Christians who do not think that, who see it slightly differently and are quite sincere about it. Yes, you can be a follower of Christ, you can be a Christian and not see that that way. The concerns, so this is not a salvation issue, the concern is, the two big underlying concerns is, is that though consistent? I mean, forget about whether people make fun of you and forget about science for a minute. You, you can believe this and be a great, there are brilliant scientists who believe the creation was Adam and Eve were an act of God. These are not mutually exclusive ideas, but I understand some people wrestle with this, fair enough. But the concern is, what else do you not believe in scripture? In other words, it's worth asking yourself, in what sense then is scripture authoritative? That is a big deal kind of a question, okay? And the second thing is, how then do you understand salvation? I would argue that instead of trying to make peace with science, the more you understand about what salvation is, what the cross really did and who Jesus really is, you will turn around and go, yeah, special act of creation. There was an Adam and there was an Eve. So, do you have to believe that? No. Why is it, however, why is Genesis written the way it is? It's not just a myth. It's there for some really fundamental reasons. Is that helpful? Okay. So, where do we go from there? And the big things I want you to take out of this, creation, purposeful, intelligent, 
ongoing relationship of God with his creation, which includes you. We are created in the image of God. It's the only reason that you can really honestly say that all human beings matter. It is the foundation of the idea of human rights. Absolutely the only rational foundation for the idea of human rights. We were created to work, to participate. We have a purpose in our lives. We matter. And we, as men and women, were designed this way not to aggravate each other. We're designed this way to help make us holy and understand what real love looks like. And then it all came crashing down. And so next week, I wanna talk about what went wrong and the fall of humanity. And here's the interesting question. Did God create evil? Is God responsible for evil? Don't know what you think about that, but next week we will decide. Thank you guys. I'll see you next time.